Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 10th of November. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, demand answers to three questions about APRA's bank bail-in law. And the Queen doesn't just use tax havens, she rules them. Craig though, before we begin, I think we'd better mention this absolute fiasco on the citizenship kerfuffle in Parliament is just getting more and more out of control every day. How ridiculous is this? Uh, Robbie, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, there's three issues here. First of all, how many parliamentarians in the last hundred years have already had citizenship? I'd say a lot. <laughs> a lot, first of all. Secondly, this issue goes to the absurdity of the Constitution. First of all, what we need to have is simply, yeah, Australian citizens, members of Parliament need to be Australian citizens. Secondly, if they're found to have dual citizenship, that's not appropriate but simply have a change of the constitution whereby people have three months in which to dump their dual citizenship and they remain in their parliament and they're not disqualified, right? So if any of these mistakes or oversights get you know, treated like anything else, they get changed and people stay in the parliament. But the big issue is here we have people being disqualified for foreign citizenship in case some people, you know, British citizenship, but here we are with a foreign head of state, namely a British queen, which everyone has to swear allegiance to. And under the, it's particularly ridiculous, under the citizenship section of the Constitution, the UK is a foreign power for the purposes of that section. It's a British Act of Parliament, Robbie, that gave yeah. us the Australian Constitution, which is now disqualifying Australians from sitting in their own parliament. Let's show the viewers how ridiculous it is. This is a new senator this year, um, Lucy Kachui, being sworn in. She's from Kenya, by the way comes to Australia from Kenya and who does, well, gets elected, which is, a, which is good, a feat, a, quite an accomplishment. Who does she swear allegiance to? Not the Australian people. Look at it. I'm going to leave that story there. Lucy Kachui, we're going to go live now to her swearing in. She's the new senator, of course, who was supposed to be joining family first, but is now coming in as an independent. Let's have a listen in. Swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth the second, the second, her heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. So there's, there's a lot of ridiculousness here, Craig. That's the pinnacle of it, though. And so people shouldn't lose sight of that. But anyway, that what the other reason I wanted to mention it before we begin this episode is because we are recruiting people, every viewer, like I've said the last few weeks, get involved in what we're doing on this APRA bill. This is a bill that they would like to sneak through Parliament Parliamentarians are distracted by this citizenship issue. And we've got people calling up MPs' offices who, until they get a call from our supporters, don't, the MPs don't know about the bill, right? So they get lots of distractions. The citizenship issue is the big one. Um, bear that in mind as you listen to what we go through because we, you have to get involved. We need lots and lots of calls to get through to them. This is a serious issue. Mm. So... Demand answers to three questions about APRA's bank bail-in law. And also, Craig, before we begin, just to reiterate for people, what we go through is in detail in the Australian Alert Service. So if you haven't got a copy before, you can call in on our toll-free number and get a copy of this for the details, right? And I encourage people to um, inquire into how you can get it regularly. It comes out every week. Okay. We've got legal advice, Craig, about this APRA crisis management or crisis resolution bill that 
um, has looked into detail in the language, especially the section covered under Chapter 5 of the Explanatory Memorandum on conversion and write-off provisions. And the advice that we've got is the language that is in there can be used to bail in deposits. Now we, the CEC, have led the charge on this since 2013 in Australia. And for a long time we've had members of parliament um, you know, swear black and blue. When Joe Hockey was the treasurer, he swore black and blue. There's no plan to bail in deposits and this is just a, a lie made up by, or a conspiracy theory, I think he called it, by a, a rival political party, i.e. us, right? Well, they've got a law here that's going to precisely be able to do exactly that. So we'll, we'll go through it and we're going to identify the three key questions. There's a press release we put out about this. The three key questions that um, viewers should get their members of parliament to ask about this bill. First of all, before we get to deposits, it's already outrageous, Craig, that this bill will allow the wholesale bail-in of what they call hybrid securities, or we call bail-in bonds. Mm -hmm. So just explain for the viewer what bail-in bonds are. Well, Robert, just to step back a bit, as you said, you know, back four years ago in 2013, we published an enormous number of these new citizens, right? Warning people bail-in uh, was coming to Australia. In fact, their own literature had said that bail-in was in train. Now, we created such a mobilisation, we took out full-page ads in The Australian saying, don't steal our deposits, which is what bail-in does. And what we mean by that title, the British Crown's plot for global genocide, the British Crown represents, it is, sits atop the city of London. Yes. And bail-in is the idea that the, the, the banks come first. People can be robbed blind to prop the banks up and that will set, that will, um, set off economic depressions that kill lots and lots of people, but they will preserve their system first. This is, and this is a British imperial policy going back centuries. The Indians suffered under it, the Irish suffered under it. Bail-in is a new version of an old ploy that the, the City of London crowd um, have. And one of, the, uh, one of the projects back there in 2013 was to create omnibus legislation. Legislation would change all the different aspects of the financial law in order to be able to bring in bail-in. This is this law. It's taken four years to get to this point, but in effect, Robbie, it, this law, as you said, can change the law to be able to potentially, at this stage, from what we've identified, allow access to bail-in people's deposits, literally seize people's deposits. Now, but, but, but to get to uh, some sort of safety valve for the bankers, yeah. not for the people, before that they've had these things called bail-inable bonds. Now, these are sold in small packets of $100 or so on the stock market by the banks. They issue these bonds in small packets and they're available to all retail investors, like mum and dad investors. But they're not available to retail investors in the UK. No, no, they're, they're illegal. So complicated. They're illegal in the UK because they are so complicated. But the thing about these things, Robbie, is that there's a lot of small print that says that if the banks get into problems, right, if their liabilities exceed their assets, or their debts exceed their assets, then these things which are considered debts because they're issued bonds can be bailed in. In other words, they can be transferred immediately into shares. That means that they no longer become debts. Yeah. And that people don't realise this. So they're thinking, oh, we can get this back at any time. But the bank says, no, 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 we can just bail these things in and, and, and we no longer have any liabilities here. Well, Craig, That's when you say the fine print, the boss of, As of ASIC, who's just before he quit a few weeks ago, pointed out that the prospectus that comes with these things is 100 pages thick. Yeah. And they're being sold to self-funded retirees and self-managed super superannuants. Super 
They're not going to read through a 100-page prospectus to see the fine print there that says, oh, you know, that you're enjoying a high interest rate now. This could all We're talking like 7 that. to 8% interest, Robbie, so that's what people are going to see. Oh, 7, percent, 7, 7 to 8% interest when I can only get 2 to 3% at maximum in other forms of interest. People get blinded by the high returns, but there's a risk associated with this, which is where uh, the banks are playing on this. Yeah. And, of course, APRA's turned a blind eye. They've allowed this to happen and build up, and there's a massive number of people involved in this that well, have been sucked in. We've estimated, so the, the St. Greg Medcraft in the Senate inquiry testimony on the 26th of October, he said there's 43 billion of these been issued in Australia, mostly to retail investors. He pointed out the parcels in which people are buying them are as, like package parcels of as little as $50,000 because that, that is a real retail investor buying a $50,000 parcel. So just say, Craig, the average parcel that retail investors are buying is about $100,000, right? You, you could have between 400 and 500,000 self-funded retirees or self-managed super in Australia having bought these things and not being aware of what we've just talked about. So if you are one of those people, if you are a self-funded retiree or you run into your own super fund, check what you've been bought, sold by your bank as a high interest bond because it could be one of these. So um, this is a big problem. Now, the legal advice we got, and this is the first question, Craig, that we, people need to ask. The legal advice we've got points out that the language in this bill, the explanatory memorandum states, APRA can order a conversion or write-off that's their preferred language, quote, despite any impediment there may be in any domestic or foreign law other than a specified law. Well, the specified laws they listed do not include the one we're going to highlight, the Trade Practices Act. The Trade Practices Act protects people from misleading conduct. So if you are one of the self-funded retirees who've just discovered that you've got bail-in bonds, or you discover them after they're bailed in, you, 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 you thought, what? I've lost my money. I didn't know when I was buying these I could lose my money, right? Under the Trade Practices Act, you would have um, grounds to go to a court and sue them, plead your case, and the, the court, on the basis of the Trade Practices Act, could set aside the conversion mm -hmm. and say, no, you can't bail these in. You, you misled the investor. So the question is, the first question, we'll put it on the screen, will APRA's powers override the provisions in the Trade Practices Act that protect consumers from misleading conduct and stop courts from blocking conversions of hybrid securities if the investors were demonstrably misled about the risks? That's the first question. Let's take a break and we'll do the next two afterwards. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're discussing Demand answers to three questions about APRA's bank bail-in law. So the first question, Craig, related to will uh, these bail-in bonds, um, will this law override any recourse that investors who have sold them unknowingly would have to say, hang on, I was done here by the yeah. banks. So the right? banks are already thinking about blowback, Robbie. Yeah. Because right? they're thinking about this, this, this bail-in is such a political hot potato in Europe. Yeah, I mean, they haven't even actually used it in many cases in Europe where it is law because they know that it's such political dynamite people's deposits being taken, that they know that governments will just get toppled if they're sent to use it. Well, the government in Italy uh, that allowed them to use it uh, before 2015 was toppled. Yeah, right. and this is the point. This is what the Australian government is terrified about, So they're, they're, and, and the regulators realise this, so they're trying to bring this in through the back door in ways that there's no blowback. Okay, so let's, let's move on. 
The APRA, the way APRA works, Craig, is they, they're called Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. And they have what are called prudential standards. And their prudential standards have the force of law. But there's only one Banking Act. And the Banking Act gives APRA the power to determine these prudential standards. So when APRA determines them, it doesn't require new legislation. They say there's a new prudential standard, it becomes law, right? Well, um, Section 11CAA of this new APRA bill defines that conversion and write-off provisions means the provision of the prudential standards that relate to the conversion or writing off of, you know, bear with us here, we'll put the language on the screen, A, additional tier one and tier two capital, and those six categories, Craig, mean shares, cash, and what they call subordinated debt, which includes these bail-in bonds, so that's one section. Or B, this is the key bit, any other instrument. So the question is, Number, question number two, what other instruments may APRA be empowered to include in its prudential standards for conversion or write-off? So they've got this power, they say, if they say it's a prudential standard, it's law. And the law says, the, the, the bill says, any other instrument. That is such vague, broad language. This is why we're making a big deal about this, right? The government's not going to flag that they're bringing in a power to bail in deposits. That's the kind of language that hides it. In this, if you're following the mechanism. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's question number two. Question number three, let's come to that. Now we're at deposits specifically. It turns out, Craig, from our legal advice, APRA already has a power in Australia to order a bank not to repay deposits. And I'll just say, these existing powers of APRAs are premised on the idea that you know, a banking crisis is not a bank banking crisis, it's a bank crisis, like you know, one bank may fall into trouble on it for a short term or whatever, and those powers apply to that, right? We're not thinking in those terms. We're thinking in terms of the possibility of a full-blown 2008-style New York, Ireland, UK banking crisis where all banks are in trouble. The government and APRA will never admit that's a possibility, but you've got to think, what, would, what are these powers let them do in those circumstances, right? So that's the issue here. So anyway, right now they have the power to order a bank not to repay deposits for whatever reason. And one of those reasons is if it could affect financial stability, as, as this is a big justification for all this. As we just saw, its prudential standards already include the power to order a conversion or a write-off of these AT1 and T2 capital categories. The changes in the APRA bill relating to conversion or write-off, this is the language in the, in the, I'm about to read you a quote from the memorandum now, quote, leave, quote, room for future changes to APRA's prudential standards, including changes that might refer to instruments that are not currently considered capital under the prudential standards. Now, so all the categories they're talking about being able to be bailed in are capital, mm -hmm. right? Now they're saying, we are going to open the scope here because sometime in the future, things that aren't considered capital today, we, APRA may decide to consider capital then. Question number three, the big one. Given that APRA can already order banks not to repay deposits, will APRA now have the power to declare deposits to be capital and order they be converted or written off, i.e. bailed in? And that's the issue, Craig. That's the yep. big one, right? This is alarming. The scope of this is absolutely enormous. Just before we conclude on this, the big question is what about the deposit 
guarantee. Well, Robbie, unless this legislation has it specifically written into it that these, the, uh, the APRA does not have this power, yep. there is no guarantee that APRA will have this power. Like, will not we, have this power, yeah. Will be given this power, right? And that's the issue here. So this is where the politicians need to get very smart and say, put that clause in. And then, you know, at Yes, no, no, you're right. So when uh, the Greens, Craig, have, have said that they can share, that they are also concerned that this bill has this power. They're going to refer it to a Senate committee. When you make your calls, what you've got to say to members of Parliament, do not accept the government's word saying, oh, no, we wouldn't do that. They, if they wouldn't do it, insert a clause in this bill to say nothing in here includes but, deposits. Robbie, that's assuming that we want this bill in the first place, which is, right, and that's a fallacy because, look, the, this is managing the financial stability of the system, which is a whole crock to start with. What we need is Glass-Steagall. We don't need to go down this road of risk management and the financial stability of the system. That's an entire concoction by the banks themselves. What we need is Glass-Steagall where you go back to a highly regulated system, you protect the commercial banking system by having a sep separating it out from all the risky stuff from the investment and the merchant banking system. You then guarantee deposits by the government and you keep that completely separate from all this other stuff so that you don't have this problem. Much, much simpler to do it so that the way. The best way to have a stable financial system is keep the core of it perfectly That's called Glass-Steagall and that's what yeah. we're calling for. And all this other stuff, right, it's not needed. No, absolutely. It's a scam. All right, so... Um, just before we conclude, call your members of parliament. Get onto our website, call into our office for the information. We can show you where you can get the information for your senators and your members of parliament. Like I said, we're, make, we're making calls where the MP's office is saying, we don't know about this bill yet, and it's already been introduced into parliament, right? Call them, because if they get a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, a hundred calls, they will not be able to ignore it, right? And then the government has a problem, because... They do intend to sneak this through. In not, not, they'll say, oh, no, we're not. But they're just downplaying it as a technical bill, right? No, it's not. This is the bail-in bill. And if it gets any attention whatsoever, they won't be able to sneak it through. And the more questions MPs ask, the less the government will be able to answer them and this thing can be stopped. All right, so let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the tax havens. Welcome back to the CEC Report. The Queen doesn't just use tax havens, she rules them. So, Craig, we've had the release of the Paradise Papers now, following the Panama Papers last year. Uh, they, it's got a lot of publicity. It's revealed some very big names who use these tax havens, including the Queen herself through her personal domain called the Duchy of Lancaster, um, which is a real look that up sometime if you want to know how the, the Queen's personal finances work and this Duchy of Lancaster. By the way, Craig, the Duchy of Lancaster that is the Queen's personal fiefdom has a seat, a re permanent representative on the British Cabinet, right? This, the British system is so undemocratic. There's nothing democratic about it. Anyway, we won't go there. Um, her particular investment that she's using this, that they expose is that she's using this uh, uh, Bermuda tax haven to hide a £10 million investment in a predatory um, payday lender, because these payday lenders, you know, yeah. desperate people go and borrow money for a week, for the annual interest rate ends up being hundreds of percent, right? And anyway, she's investing in that. Backdrop though, this group of journalists that keep producing these things is called the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists and, you know, whatever different groups. The journalists themselves, I'm sure, are very sincere, uh, or mostly sincere. However, the actual group is funded by, among others, this, that character George Soros, if people are familiar with him, one of the biggest financial crooks in the world, 
right? And one of the results of that is whenever you see these leaks, they talk about a few people here. Last year it was David Cameron's father and whatever, and this year the Queen's a bit involved. But then it's all about Russia, 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 Russia. That evil empire, the most evil place in the world. Darth Vader, eat your heart out. We've got Vladimir Putin, step aside. Evil, evil, evil. There's the new Hitler, you know, and it's just um, propaganda writ large, right? So anyway, just bear that in mind when you see that, that, that part of it. Because the big issue is that the leak itself, when they talk about the users, misses the point. Why do these things exist in the first place? And it's not that the Queen uses them, she rules these things. I want to play you a clip, a clip though, that was on the BBC on, um, last week when these came out. Just, that just actually made the honest point, in a general way, that these, the existence of these tax havens is a legacy of British imperialism. Our imperial past is also important. Across the world, what are called crown dependencies or overseas territories, places like Jersey and Guernsey and the Isle of Man, which have an arm's length relationship with us and have based their economy on low tax offers to companies and individuals to hold some of their wealth there. Others are more far-flung, places like Gibraltar, as well as Bermuda, the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, and Turks and Caicos. And so you see there all, the, all, all those different, they're called British Overseas Territories. They are the colonies the British kept when their empire um, started to shrink after World War II, right? This is an infrastructure that they set up deliberately, and they set it up just as their empire was shrinking, to establish the supremacy of their financial empire, Craig. This gives Britain and the city of London, which is the world's biggest financial center, the power to rule the world's financial system. And because what it does, these things exist to rape and pillage nations through not just tax evasions, money laundering, they protect organized crime. They're criminal centers, everyone knows that. And But no one wants to talk about the fact that one of the most important countries in the world the most holier than our country in the world, runs these things. Um, we'll put this on the screen. In March 2009, the Australian newspaper, actually, in the context of the global financial crisis, ran a story called Pirates of the Caribbean, which admitted that these tax havens had the same purpose as the English privateers of old, people like Sir Francis Drake, who were nothing but cutthroat um, pirates, mm -hmm. but they were legalised by the English crown as long as they... Um, conducted their piracy on the rival kingdoms, right? That, then it was all legal. And that's the, that, it's, a, it's the metaphor for how these things exist. The best thing you can read on it is a book by Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Jackson called Treasure Islands. And if you want to know all the details about it, read that. There's a quote, though, I'll, I'll give you from the Australian article where they quote the Tax Justice Network's Richard Murphy, who's a British accountant. He makes the point Britain could shut them all down but their existence is a deliberate British policy. And this is what he says. London is the biggest tax haven in the world because all these other places are just branches of London. The constitutions of all the British overseas territories can be changed by Britain whenever we like, Murphy says. Every single law passed in the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Jersey, Jersey, the Isle of Man and so on, including Bermuda, has to be signed by the Queen meaning it is actually signed by our Ministry of Constitutional Affairs. So, Craig, 
Should the nations of the world put sanctions on the United Kingdom as a rogue nation until it shuts these things down? Well, that would be simply endorsing the same sort of policy for everyone else, like North Korea or even Russia itself, Robbie. Because look, well, they do. we're talking about we talked about you know the British Crown before. We talked about the British Crown's financial empire, right? This is the policy of bail-ins being applied to all these countries around the world. Here we have billions, if not trillions, of dollars being laundered through. Uh, and avoiding legitimate governments, right, and taxations and so forth that should be paying for hospitals and for schools and so forth by the Queen herself. This is totally disgusting. Yep, let's shut it down. All right, thanks, Craig. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for watching.